Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. And it's 7 (laughs) o'clock! My name is John Moser, Professor of History and Co-Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program here at Ashland University. Welcome to our second season, season if that's the appropriate word, of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series. In each episode, we'll do a deep dive into a single document discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of it, while also analyzing its impact on American history, uh, the American people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. To help us begin to think about the topics of this year's webinars, we're drawing speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's extensive document database available at tah.org. You can participate in the discussion by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time, and I will do my best to get to all of your questions. The subject of today's program is the Declaration of Independence, and to help discuss it are Dr. Robert M. S. McDonald, Professor of History at the United States Military Academy at West Point, and Dr. Todd Estes, Professor of History at Oakland University. Uh, uh, Rob, Todd, it's great to have you with us this evening. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here, John. Thanks for having us. Well, you're welcome. And just to begin... um, In 1825, Thomas Jefferson famously wrote that the Declaration of Independence was an expression of the American mind. What did he mean by that? Todd, you want to go first or should I? Why don't you go first and I'll follow. All right, sure. Well, I think he he meant um, that indeed it was. Um, A little bit of background, a little bit of context. the notion of authorship was becoming much more modern um, and the definition of authorship uh, was becoming um, sort of recognizable to us. So authorship um, to us and authorship by 1825 meant um, that you are the originator of uh, the ideas and the words. And um, people were beginning to charge Jefferson with plagiarism. And they were beginning to, to say, you know, hey, check it out. I mean, you know, these phrases sound a lot like John Locke's um, Second Treatise on Government, or uh, they sound a lot like, you know, what George Mason has produced. Um, and, and people were beginning to say that, uh, you know, Jefferson was, uh, you know, he had d- done something wrong. And so he's responding to these charges by saying the Declaration of Independence was, was never intended to invent new principles. It was never intended... Um, to uh, to be you know an individual expression. Instead, what I was trying to do is distill you know all of the ideas that Americans um, had been discussing and embracing um, you know during the 
the more than 10 year period um, prior to 1776 that he was trying to put into words, um, you know, exactly what Americans were thinking and why they objected to British rule. Hmm. Yeah, I, was, I would certainly agree with everything Rob said. And I, I think what I would add is maybe a second related point. Um, and that is that, that um, what Jefferson wrote in the declaration, I think very clearly, we know from a lot of other evidence, did represent what uh, large numbers of American patriots were thinking and writing themselves. Uh, we know this from a lot of the local declarations that people wrote up and down the, the seaboard, um, sent to the Continental Congress, published, uh, circulated privately as well. And when we read those and look at the ideas and the concerns that were developing there, then I think we can see very clearly the ideas that Jefferson articulates brilliantly and famously in the Declaration were, as Jefferson rightly said, not brand new ideas, not novel ideas, not only in the sense of political theory, but also in the sense of what Americans themselves had, had largely been thinking and, and writing to each other and writing to their leaders. So I think in that sense, Jefferson uh, meant exactly what he said um, in both the, the authorship sense that Rob talked about, and also in the sense that his words truly did capture the, uh, the patriot side of the equation in the revolution. Hmm. Maybe we should talk a bit about the historical context of this. Uh, the Second Continental Congress has met. What is the occasion for Jefferson, uh, Jefferson drafting this? Uh, what are his considerations going in that, that, that influence the specific verbiage he uses? Well, maybe I'll take the first part of that question and Todd could take the second. Um, you know, Jefferson uh, was was well liked as a member of the Continental Congress, in part um, because of two things. Uh, he was quiet in, in Congress. He didn't occupy a lot of airtime. Um, and he was a really hard worker. He was placed on a number of important committees. Um, and, you know, he really distinguished himself as a worker and especially as a writer. Um, the Continental Congress was interested in trying to um, forge a consensus among different colonies from different regions. Um, the, the committee that was selected to draft the declaration included Robert Livingston of New York, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, John Adams of Massachusetts, of course, Ben Franklin, probably the most famous member of Congress at the time of Pennsylvania. And that left a, a big hole. You know, they, they needed someone from the South and Jefferson, you know, being from Virginia, um, I think that was a, a, an important consideration as well. Um, when it came time for the men to meet, immediately the question came up, well, who's going to take the lead in drafting this thing? Jefferson uh, turned to John Adams and said to John Adams, you should do it. Um, you've been leading the, the, the call for independence for, for months now. Um, and Adams said, no, I, I can't do it. You must do it. And Jefferson said, well, why me? And Adams said, I'll give you three reasons. Um, reason number one, I, John Adams, am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular, right? Um, which is classic John Adams. We get, gotta love uh, his capacity for self-deprecation. Um, but he was obnoxious in, in calling for, uh, I'm sorry, he was obnoxious in calling for uh, independence. I mean, he'd been beating this horse for a, a really long time. Um, and so he worried that if he was too intimately connected with this document, um, people might uh, you know, dismiss it or not take it as, as seriously. Um, he, was he was suspected too, because um, remember, he was from Massachusetts, and it was in Massachusetts 
that the fighting had broken out. It was Massachusetts that had the most skin in this game. It was in Massachusetts that blood had been shed. It was Massachusetts that had been targeted by the intolerable acts, which followed the Boston Tea Party. Um, Jefferson could be a little bit more impartial as a Virginian, and that would give him greater credibility. Um, Adams said, uh, you know, reason um, number two, uh, you are a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to be at the head of this business. Uh, again, you know, for, for the, the reasons that he had spelled out, New England was on board um, this project of independence, but bringing in the South, um, the Southern delegates at the Continental Congress was very important. And then Adams said, reason number three, um, a big compliment coming from John Adams. Adams said, you, Thomas Jefferson, can write 10 times better than I can. Hmm. So the musical 1776 basically got it right. It basically did. Yeah. yeah. Right. Todd, say, this this could be a this should be a musical almost, and of course it, it already is. And Rob and I have known this for a long, long time. Um, yeah, just a couple of things I think to, to add to that. Um, I think something else that makes Jefferson's authorship really key here in the context of the Continental Congress is that whereas Adams was acerbic and obnoxious and um, disliked by many people. Uh, he tends to write that way, I think, as well. But Jefferson, not only in this letter, but in so much else that Jefferson writes, I mean, he obviously could could write uh, in anger as he did sometimes, but but the declaration is, is, I think, emotionally a very cool, calm, restrained kind of performance, kind of document. And I think Jefferson was very, very good at that. I mean, he, uh, Adams and Jefferson were both great writers, but they were, as Rob notes, I think, different writers. And I think the tone and the style and the approach and the manner of Jefferson uh, was really perfectly suited to this document. I think the other thing as well, the second point I would make uh, comparing the two, and I think this is something that the, the Congress valued in Jefferson, he could be admirably succinct. He could get to a point, he could make it, he could develop it to the point that he needed to, and then he would get out and move on. Adams, I think, rather always was long-winded. Uh, Adams was far more like, um, uh, Alexander Hamilton and that he tended to overwrite. Uh, if six pages would do, he'd write 12. And I think in this case, Jefferson is able to express this not only um, eloquently and succinctly, but also do it in a way that's um, in which both the tone and uh, I guess the, the length and the style really dovetailed very nicely. That's a great skill to have. And I think members in Congress recognize that in Jefferson. And that's one of the reasons why uh, his authorship, I think, was was critical, I would argue, to the success of the of the document, that it was a Jefferson as the primary author, even if he is expressing this American mind, uh, rather than Adams as the primary author. They could mm -hmm. both summarize, but I think they did it in very different ways. And I would argue Jefferson's was more effective. Um, th this is the, an op a great opportunity for our first uh, uh, question from our participants. Uh, Stacey Moses asks, was there any evidence that Jefferson actually knew about or read some of these other private or state level writings pertaining to, well, we're not talking about Locke, obviously he read Locke, but some of these other things that, that could have been regarded as expressions uh, of the American mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the documents that he was accused of uh, plagiarizing, you know, by some uncharitable people um, in, in the 19th century, uh, were documents that were well known. They were well known to everybody. They helped to shape the American mind. They were expressions of the American mind. Um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, not only Locke's second treatise, um, but 
uh, Sam Adams's rights of the colonists as 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 men, which came out, I believe, in um, 1765 in response to the Stamp Act. Um, he uses the expression "life, liberty, and property." Um, you know, George Mason, uh, you know, in his Virginia Declaration of Rights, uh, uses language that's similar. I mean, it, it's it's essentially everywhere, and I think that's part of what Jefferson is up to. You know, as as Todd uh, pointed out um, so so well, Jefferson. Was a great writer, and in many respects, I think in in our parlance, what Jefferson was doing was he was essentially inserting into the text of the Declaration, 18th century hyperlinks, right? So when you saw life and liberty, and, and then he he changes it to the pursuit of happiness, which we can discuss later if you wish. Um, that that was a hyperlink. Everyone knew that that connected. To John Locke, everyone knew exactly what he was talking about. Um, so, in a way, you know, he's referencing these other um, documents. He's he's almost like uh, he's a musician and he's sampling, you know, different, yeah. different music. Mm -hmm. uh, Todd, did you have something else to add to that? Well, I was just going to say briefly. Yeah, I think in terms of um, of these local declarations, I think a great number of those were actually intentionally sent to the Continental Congress. Uh, as a way of again hearing from their constituents, that idea of of um, of corresponding between the colonies and corresponding with different bodies was had been developed earlier in the revolutionary struggle, and I think this is one of the ways that Jefferson and the Continental Congress could be assured that they were not too far out in front of of their people, uh -huh. not too far out in front of the people they were representing, because these local documents were being sent in and they could be read and seen. I think less for particular phrases or ideas that people might borrow but simply as a sense of where, if you will, public opinion could be measured in the absence of other kinds of gauges that we're not, we know of, like polling and things like that, to try to gauge public opinion. So I think these were sent to Congress and they would, uh, not only Jefferson, but uh, all the delegates there would have had quite, a, quite a, a sampling of opinion from around the country and would kind of know, again, where they were and where their constituents were. Well, this gets me to my next question. What, what exactly uh, where it's Jefferson and Adams and the rest, what did they hope to accomplish through this through this declaration? They mentioned, of course, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impelled them to the separation. But did they have specific goals in mind aside from simply announcing independence? I always jump in because I, the silence makes me uncomfortable, but I don't I always want to be the person who, who responds uh, first. So, Todd, why don't you take a swipe at this and then I'll, I'll chime oh, in. Oh, sure. Yeah. I thought we were in a one-two pattern there, which I think we'll shake things up and, and vary here. Um, yeah, I think a lot of it depends on, on how you want to read this document. Uh, if you want to read it as sort of a, a general statement um, of principles and ideas into which the Continental Congress is attaching the American situation, or if you want to read it sort of from the outside in as a very particular document that speaks to the American principles that then tags on these other kinds of, uh, of ideas and principles that, of course, later were famously picked up by, uh, by many, many others and still have a great resonance today. So I think some of that depends on this inevitable question we can ask about every document, and that is, who is the audience? What is the audience? And I think in this case, the Declaration probably has multiple audiences. I think for one, it's sort of reflecting back to the American people, some of the same sentiments they've been reaching on their own independently for the past several years. 
it clearly declares to um, a candid world, as Jefferson writes, and to the, uh, the British, uh, what the colonies are doing, that they are now declaring themselves the United States of America, and all the efforts at reconciliation um, that have been tried and failed and found wanting are now being abandoned. And that's, this is a new day and a new, a new beginning here. So I think in that sense, they're, they're declaring this for, um, I guess the third sense I would add is they're declaring it obviously for posterity. Uh, they clearly, the, the, the founding generation had a tremendous interest in and dedication to um, the theme and to trying to um, uh, know that their goals, their deeds, the work that they did would be talked about in later generations, would be revered, would be acted upon and followed in later generations. And so I think they're also part of their audience is sort of across and through time uh, here as well. So I think that's what I would say. And then, and then Rob, I'm sure, can pick up on other other points. Yeah, I mean, I, I think everything that Todd says is, is spot on. Um, your question calls to mind, uh, you know, the, the words of John Adams uh, in 1776. He, he estimated um, that you could almost divide the American population into thirds. Um, a third of the people were in favor of independence. A third of the people were opposed to independence. And a third of the people were on the fence. And... Um, you know, I think it's 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 probably uh, a good rough estimate that he made. Certainly, those were the three options that were available to people. And you know, since you very much care about um, having a, a a government that derives its just powers from the consent of the governed, not only is the Declaration trying to express the American mind, but certainly the Declaration is trying to shape the American mind and to you know lay out in a very clear, um, compelling way exactly you know what the purpose of government was and why the british government um was no longer serving that that purpose and and how you know uh this was not because of light and transient causes um but only because of repeated injuries and usurpations um that that the colonists had tried to address um with petitions um they had complained they had uh you know spoken out and uh time after time again you know, the British government had violated their rights. Okay, well, uh, I eventually want to get to the question of how this document was, was received, but maybe we should spend, the, spend some time talking about the, how, it was, how it was crafted. And, of course, this requires us to, uh, to look at the uh, original draft and compare it to the final one. Larry Fata has a, uh, has a, a question specifically on this. Uh, Larry writes, I've always been fascinated by Jefferson including the abolition of slavery in his original draft, especially in light of his continued ownership of slaves. Also, he concluded a complaint that the British were inciting rebellions among the slaves, which seems contradictory. Can you comment? Well, sure. I mean, I think, I think that, uh, first of all, I mean, it is, it's very interesting that Thomas Jefferson um, blames the slave trade upon the king. Um, and he views this as absolute barbarism, um, that people in, in their native land would be kidnapped and captured and carried off in chains and brought against their will uh, to the new world is uh, you know, clearly repugnant to him. And that is clearly uh, wrong as far as he's concerned. And in fact, you know, as far as Jefferson's uh, record on slavery, one of his greatest achievements is at the earliest constitutionally allowable moment, 
um, which was 1808, Jefferson was president, he signed into law a bill that ended the international slave trade. Um, and I think that was possible politically, not only because of anti-slavery sentiment um, in the North, but also, um, frankly, because uh, politically powerful, large Southern planters um, would essentially uh, be able to, to use the end of the international slave trade to increase the value of their own slaves um, and make it more difficult and more expensive um, for startup planters um, to acquire slave labor. Um, so, you know, that's, that's true. And uh, Jefferson was very much uh, against the slave trade. But of course, he's also fearful um, of slave uprisings. Uh, you know, the, there, there had been slave uprisings already in American history, and there would be more to come. Um, and that is something that, that, that slaveholders, you know, feared continually. And one of the things that Lord Dunmore, the, the last royal governor of Virginia, did was um, he promised uh, slaves who were uh, enslaved by patriot masters, if you, you know, can, can slip away and uh, find the British Army, we will take you in and uh, allow you to, to fight for us and work for us during the course of the war. And the promise was, um, after the end of the war, you'll be given your freedom. That promise usually wasn't kept, but, um, mm. but it's a promise that was made. So it was very destabilizing. Okay. I think the other thing I would add to that is that, um, uh, including slavery in this, really, I think, sort of muddies the focus in a way that, uh, because obviously the colonists were clearly not blameless in that. And although Jefferson wants to point the finger at the king and, and British um, commerce and things, uh, obviously he knew, as the others knew, that the colonists were uh, deeply implicated in that. And I think if you're trying to craft a document, as, as this is, a document that's aimed at the king and his ministers and what the British have done for the past decade, to, to bring in the slavery issue really sort of muddies it a little bit and blurs that focus because it's hard to keep the focus purely on the king and purely on the British. And I think um, this is one of those changes um, where I think the, uh, you know, Jefferson's friends on the committee who revised this um, did a good job. I, I think it made it even more succinct. We, we talked before about how Jefferson could be very pithy and very, very much to the point in his writing. I think the revisions made to Jefferson's original draft made that even more so. They sort of underscored Jefferson's uh, best points. And I think leaving that part out, uh, cutting that part as they did, uh, really made it a much tighter and more tightly argued document. And I think that added to its um, power and success and, and persuasiveness. Yeah, right. And, you know, uh, other alterations were made, um, you know, by Congress as a whole. And when the delegates from uh, South Carolina and Georgia, you know, heard of this, they essentially made it known, you know, if this if this stays in, you could count us out. So it's really kind of poignant when you think about it. I mean, at the at the very moment of America's birth, slavery possessed the potential to lead to a, a dissolution of, of the union. And at the moment of America's birth, um, we compromise on the issue of slavery. Well, this is where Edward Rutledge sings molasses to rum to slaves, right? <laughs> That's right. I, I, I have to say, 15 years ago, I was in 1776. I played Josiah Bartlett of, uh, of um, uh, New Hampshire, right? New Hampshire, yeah, yeah. And uh, so my great line was, for the love of God, Mr. Rutledge, please. Um, I, I do want to get to some of the other changes that you see going from the, the rough draft to the final draft of the Declaration. But uh, a very interesting question is being asked by uh, Nick S., 
Uh, I keep hearing America slash American. Um, he wants to know, and so do I, when it became common for uh, for residents or leaders of uh, Britain's North American colonies to refer to themselves as Americans? Well, I think partly we can get at the answer to that by thinking about the, the, the context of 1776 and sort of the other great document published in earlier that year in January, which was, of course, Payne's Common Sense, mm -hmm. uh, which refers repeatedly to the idea of American, American this, American that. And I don't know that that was uh, new and original with Payne, certainly. Um, and I know in many ways, thinking about America as a place actually began, I think, with uh, at least as early as the Grinville ministry in the mid-1760s in Great Britain, when they're trying to figure out what to do about these colonies, what to do at the end of the, the Great War for Empire. They're the ones actually on the other side of the Atlantic that begin to think about and sort of identify America as a place, um, uh, even before the, the British colonists in America do themselves. So I think in many ways, that the, the idea of America and American would be clearly in people's mindsets because of pain and common sense, which of course was enormously widely published, widely read. Um, people would have heard it as well as uh, encountered it in print. And that would sort of be in the, in the mindset in the American public by the time that, uh, that the declaration is uh, printed a half year later. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, um, the need for the word American is apparent in this situation. I mean, in the run-up to uh, the Declaration of Independence, um, it was it was well enough for them to refer to themselves as Englishmen um, and to refer to the rights of, of British individuals. Um, but they're very explicitly making the point um, that they're not, right? And that they are also one people um, and that they are connected um, by their residence here on this continent um, their shared language, their shared culture, their shared values, and maybe most especially um, their shared principles. Okay. One of the other uh, passages that doesn't find its way into the final document is, uh, let's see, it starts with, we have reminded them, this is where he talks about our British brethren toward the end. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. That found its way into the final. Followed by this, no one of which could warrant so strange a pretension that these were effected at the expense of our own blood and treasure, unassisted by the wealth or the strength of Great Britain, that in constituting indeed our several forms of government, we had adopted one common king, thereby laying a foundation for perpetual league and amity with them, but that submission to their parliament was no part of our constitution nor ever in idea if history may be credited. This is kind of a fascinating passage. On, on the one hand, um, unassisted by the wealth or the strength of Great Britain, is, is, is Jefferson seriously claiming that Great Britain did not, <laughs> did, had, had nothing to do with the, uh, 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 with the thriving of the states, especially during the, uh, during the recent uh, French and Indian War? Well, I mean, you're, you're maybe raising an issue about why it was removed. I think what Jefferson is doing here, though, is he's channeling his 1774 pamphlet, um, The Summary View of the Rights of British America. And, and there he sort of lays out his perhaps idiosyncratic um, version of, of American history, um, where he points out that the original settlers of these uh, colonies 
were, were not agents of the British government. They were not funded by the British government. It's not like, you know, the moon landing in 1969 where the American taxpayer paid for um, uh, Neil Armstrong to set foot on the moon. Um, these were private individuals. They were funded by joint stock companies or, or they paid, you know, their way across out of pocket. He said, you know, for them, for themselves, they settled for themselves. They struggled um, for themselves. Uh, they, they alone had the right to hold. And he says that they voluntarily gave their allegiance in this state of nature, which they discovered, right? They voluntarily gave their allegiance um, to the king of, of, of Great Britain, and therefore they could voluntarily withdraw that allegiance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Jefferson clearly certainly knows better, knows that the British had an enormous amount to contribute certainly to the growth and the rise of the colonies. But again, the purpose of this document is not to sort of be the subtle scholar, right? Not to sort of say, well, there's 17 points on this side and 14 points on that side and six <laughs> of these have great merit and three have some merit and things like that. I, I sort of always think of him as, as writing this in almost a fever of concentration where he's he's writing, he's got a point he wants to make and every single thing that he's trying to do has got to essentially um, do the work of excoriating the British for everything. I mean, this is sort of a classic breakup letter, right? Where he's sort of saying here, you've never loved us, you don't love us now, let's quit pretending like you ever have. And I think Jefferson in, in including that part in, in his draft, um, I think is, is trying to connect and say, well, we've never needed you, we don't need you now. And we've really never needed you because when you really think about it, uh, there's nothing fundamental that you've done to really help us. It's, it's clearly a, a bit of an exaggeration, but it comes, it's, I think it's true to the sentiment that Jefferson is writing within, the sort of framework that he's writing within, and it's true to his uh, sense of, of controlled anger that he's sort of expressing and I think uh, channeling in, in the Declaration. And I'll just add really quickly too, I mean, I think a lot of times we hear people um, I remember my, my high school social studies teacher describing the American Revolution and our Declaration of Independence uh, as, as sort of like a, a parent-child situation. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that Jefferson and Adams and Franklin and all the rest would strongly object to that metaphor. Um, they were adults. Um, America had been settled and peopled and colonized by adults. Um, and, and they were, you know, claiming uh, their, their fair place. I, I hope all of you are paying attention to that. Now, you may, the eminent scholar, Robert McDonald, is, you may disagree with what his high school history teacher said, but he remembers it. So, you know, <laughs> take note. I want to look at another, uh, another uh, uh, passage that didn't make it past the proverbial cutting room floor. And it's, uh, it's just a little bit past the one we we're just talking about. This is again where, well, we've, we've, we've appealed to our British brethren, but uh, uh, they too have been deaf to the voice and justice of, of justice and of consanguinity. That part made it in. And when occasions have been given them by the regular course of their laws, of removing from their councils and disturbers of our harmony, they have by their free election reestablished them in power. At this very time, too, they are permitting their chief magistrate to send over not only soldiers of our common blood, but Scotch and foreign mercenaries to invade and destroy us. These facts have given the last stab to agonizing affection, and manly spirit bids us to renounce forever these unfeeling brethren. We must endeavor to forget our former love for them and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. 
we might have been a free and a great people together, but a communication of grandeur and of the and and of freedom, it seems, is below their dignity. Be it so, since they will have it. The road to happiness and to glory is open to us too. We will tread it apart from them. A very interesting passage, um, kind of lovely as well. Why does that? Uh, why does that not make it into the uh, into the final draft? Well, I agree. I think it is a beautiful passage. I really like that. I think it's very nicely expressed, and it's it's a very poignant, um, uh, I think, really fervent, uh, fervently written passage. But again, um, it seems to be um, again broadening the focus. Uh, if, if the if the real goal here is to indict the king for his many crimes against uh, his colonists in North America, this seems to be broadening it even to perhaps the the British electorate, those people who are sending members to parliament who are continuing to pass these laws and these measures, who are continuing to send troops to the, uh, to the British colonies uh, and to the, uh, the people uh, in the government who have been chosen and are continuing to do this as well. So it really sort of broadens that focus in a way that, that tends to, to distract and sort of drive off the, the course a little bit. I can see why Jefferson loved this so much because it is a great passage, but I think it does, uh, it was sort of rightly cut if we're thinking about the Declaration again as being a document with a purpose, and I think this goes a little bit off a, a wonderful detour, but it, nonetheless, I, I, I read it as a kind of detour, and, and that blurs the, the, the focus of his charge. Yeah, I think Todd's exactly right. Um, you know, I think what, what is behind the sentiment um, fundamentally is a sense that the British have declared independence from us through their actions. Right. Yeah. Um, that they have abandoned um, their government of us, um, that a government, a, a, a just and legitimate government, you know, protects rights to life and liberty and property. They've been injuring those rights. And in the process of, 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 of doing that, um, they had, had started not to treat the American colonists as fellow Englishmen. Um, but frankly, they had started to treat American colonists like Irishmen, right, as a foreign people. Um, who could be occupied and invaded and at the point of a, of a musket um, or a bayonet, uh, you know, be, be coerced into um, obeying and acquiescing to British law. That's not how you treat a free people. Hmm. Now, but doesn't this get, get us to one of the main problems with the Declaration of Independence, that George III is made out to be some sort of absolutist tyrant, when, in effect, he is uh, he rules with the consent of uh, with, with the consent of Parliament, and Parliament is is getting off pretty much scot free in this document, right? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, just to go back to that same passage there. Um, Jefferson's most poignant phrase to, to me is when he talks about how you know we, we could have been great together, mm -hmm. we could have been so good, and I think from 1763 onward the British colonists in North America thought it was great and couldn't quite figure out why the British kept changing policies and doing these things. And the real mover behind those policies was, of course, always you know, Parliament and the various prime ministers. So I think, again, rather than going after Parliament um, uh, separately or differently or in relation to the king, um, I think the major thing is it's good to have sort of maybe one clear enemy you can go after rather than multiple. But I, I think, again, everything they say about the king, it seems to me, could, could fairly be applied to, to Parliament. Um, and certainly as the colonists made their uh, declarations here of, of charges of, of um, betrayal as they saw it, 
uh, I think Parliament's right up there, right up there with it. But the but the scathing criticisms of Parliament are blunted before it goes to the final uh, the final version, and the final version really is a broadside against uh, against the king. Could could this be because uh, uh, because people uh, the members of the of the Continental Congress recognize that they have friends in Parliament? And so they don't want to. They don't want to offend Parliament needlessly. They think that maybe at one point, in, in one point, Parliament might decide that they don't want to vote further war funds. That's a really interesting possibility. I'd never considered it before, John. Um, I, I I think it may well be true. Um, I, I think probably the primary reason why the blame is laid squarely at the feet of the king um, is because first of all, as king, he does assent to all the laws of Parliament, and this is, after all, not yet another petition. This is a declaration of independence and the king is the head of state. Um, so to separate from the, the British state, uh, they need to, to you know, make the king out to be um, the person who is ultimately responsible for all of these offenses. Okay, uh, I want to remind our uh, uh, those of you who are listening. We, if you have uh, if you have questions to add, we uh, would currently uh, welcome them. Um, maybe now we should uh, spend a little time on the reaction to the Declaration of Independence, and uh, this would bring us to Thomas Hutchinson. Now, not a lot of Americans are familiar with the uh, with the Loyalist argument, and uh, and I have to say, uh, upon reading this. It seems kind of kind of strong. Is is Hutchinson right in, in in at least some ways in his scathing denunciation of this document? Well, I think Hutchinson is is clearly one of the most one of the sharpest, most articulate of uh, the group of people we think of as loyalists. And he has certainly struggled with um, not only rowdy crowds in Boston, but with pamphleteers and. Uh, those in the Patriot um, organization for some time. Um, and I think it's interesting when we when we read these strictures, as he calls them, uh, where he goes clause by clause and simply tears apart what, uh, what's been written here. But, but I think part of what uh, gives us a sense of his mindset, where Hutchinson is, is coming from, uh, comes in the sort of introductory part of this uh, document, where he talks about how uh, many thousands of people who were before good and loyal subjects have been deluded and by degrees induced to rebel against the best of princes and the mildest of governments. I think for Hutchinson and many loyalists, that was exactly true. King George was a very benevolent king, uh, very mild. It was a very mild government. And what happened was a few rowdies and hotheads were basically stirring the pot. And they did this enough times and enough times and provoked enough incidents to where they gradually diluted the colonists. And that to me, I think, is a very important aspect of the loyalist reaction to not just the declaration, but the loyalist reaction to the entire colonial protests going back to 1765. You people don't know how good you have it. A king who was in fact much beloved in, in, uh, in Great Britain and, and certainly would be during the Napoleonic Wars. Rob? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think, again, Todd has made a, a really shrewd point there. Um, I, I also zeroed in on a statement made by Hutchinson in the beginning of, of the document, um, which is essentially that, you know what, there are some of these hotheads, they had wanted independence all along, right? Ever since the Stamp Act. They, that, it was just an excuse 
for, for them to make a case for independence. And the fact that he believed that, and I, I believe that he believed that very sincerely, um, I think maybe helps us to understand uh, just how the situation spun out of control. Um, in 1765, guys like James Otis and Sam Adams, um, you know, claiming that the Stamp Act was evidence that the British wanted to enslave them and take away their rights, there were probably a good number of Americans um, who thought that they were really out to lunch. And yet, when you consider the American, the British reactions to American actions, um, such as sending troops um, to live among them without their consent, such as uh, using those troops to march out to through Lexington to conquer to to take their their weapons, um, you know these these people who might have been um, regarded or disregarded as conspiracy theorists in 1765 were prophets by 1775 <laughs> because of the actions of the British. Okay. Um, why don't we look at uh, one of these passages here? I would tell you what page it's on on mine, but everyone who's printed it probably has a different pagination. Uh, this is part of uh, part of the, the preamble, if that's the appropriate thing to call it. Uh, I should therefore be impertinent if I, because he's going to be puckish here, if I attempted to shew in what case a whole people may be justified in rising up in opination Opugnation? I, I, I don't know that. I, there are a few words that he drops in here that I never heard before. In opugnation, which I assume means opposition, to the powers of government, altering or abolishing them, and substituting in whole or in part new powers in their stead. Or in what sense all men are created equal. Or how far life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness may be said to be unalienable, by the way, I have to remember to mention why he goes from using uh, liberty, it's why he goes from, uh, uh, sorry, a property to pursuit of happiness. But he said to be unalienable. Only I could wish to ask the delegates of Maryland, Virginia, and the Carolinas how their constituents justified the depriving more than 100,000 Africans of their rights to liberty and the pursuit of happiness, and in some degree to their lives, if these rights are so absolutely unalienable. Doesn't he have a pretty significant point here, or a series of significant points? Uh, he does, and it's, it's one that was not lost on, uh, you know, the, the leaders of the independence movement um, back in the 1760s, um, you know, in response to British Adams, actions. John Adams himself said, we won't be their Negroes. Direct mm. quote, we won't be their Negroes. In other words, we will not allow them to treat us as badly as we treat the people we hold <laughs> in slavery. Yeah, Rob's absolutely right. And I think, again, that's why the, the, the constant use by Jefferson and by many other of these colonial protests of the phrase slavery and enslavement keeps coming up. And they don't mean chattel slavery, but they mean being treated in the sense of, uh, of, of the way that the, the uh, colonists treated their slaves as well, uh, which of course was chattel slavery. So uh, I think that's th that concept, that idea of, of slavery in this revolutionary time period does cut a couple different ways. And I think Hutchinson, um, as earlier and later critics, uh, you know, skewered the, the uh, uh, independence movement, uh, the Patriot movement for, um, did not have a, a clean record on this. 
And I think Hutchinson does raise points there, certainly, that um, are, are obviously worth thinking about. And to him, to Hutchinson and many loyalists, that absence of that consideration, I think, really undercut that larger argument. How can you talk about unalienable rights? How can you phrase this the way you do and talk about life and liberty, and yet for people from Maryland South, continue to own and, and buy and sell slaves in that way? I think it is a, a telling point, and it's part of that uh, Hutchinson's contempt, I think, for the arguments and dismissal of any sort of notion that there's some higher principle that they're really fighting for here. And, and yet, you know, we know um, there's a great book that was published in 1975 that uh, I know Todd and, and John have read, and, and perhaps even um, the, the people who are listening into the conversation by Edmund Morgan called American Slavery, American Freedom. And the subtitle is The Ordeal of Colonial Vir Virginia. Um, but one of the questions he's, he's asking um, is exactly the one that Hutchinson poses. You know, how, how is it that these people surrounded by slavery um, would speak so eloquently and loudly about liberty? And uh, the answer for him is it was the fact that they were surrounded by slavery, that they saw every day people who were unfree, um, people who uh, f forget, you know, who didn't forget having, you know, a, a right to property. They didn't even own themselves. The, it made freedom that much more, um, uh, how can I put it, um, essential to them, right? They understood what slavery really was and, and that deepened their appreciation for freedom and their, their you know, insistence that they, would be, that they would maintain it for themselves. I have some more questions about Hutchinson, but, but I don't want to go too much farther without addressing the question of how Locke's concept of life, liberty, and property morphed into life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Could you say a little about that? Well, uh, John, you, I mean, I know, I know what one of the things that you were going to say, because you said the word unalienable. And when we think about what unalienable means, uh, an unalienable right is one that cannot be assigned to someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a life is unalienable, liberty is unalienable, but property is alienable. You can sell your house to someone else. You can transfer your property rights. So from a sort of philosophical standpoint, um, that's not a very good fit. I think there's, there's, there's another, uh, another factor that should probably be considered. There was a great book that came out, I think in 1992 by the late great um, Stanford scholar, Jay Flegelman called Declaring Independence. And essentially uh, he made a, a kind of neat and startling discovery among the original broadsides, the printed versions of the Declaration of Independence is one that's really peculiar because it, it has scattered within the text all of these strange punctuation marks, quotations and apostrophes. And you know why that was, was always sort of a mystery. Flegelman found in, in Jefferson's library, a book on rhetoric um, that said essentially that uh, you know, good, good writing is, is compelling um, when it's read aloud, that it, that it has certain natural rhythms, um, that you should emphasize words, that you should have a certain sort of cadence, and that you should um, keep track of, of the rhythm and the, 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 the parts where you emphasize things um, by using a system of symbols. And the system of symbols suggested in this book correspond to these errant punctuation marks in this broadside. So it seems as if Jefferson supplied this, er, this draft of the, of the declaration that was marked up in this way 
to that printer and that that printer just literally transcribed them. In, in other words, I think one reason that Jefferson wrote pursuit of happiness instead of property is because it just flowed better. That That's fascinating to me because I don't, I had heard the argument that liberty or sorry, that property is alienable, therefore we don't include it. And it's always bothered me because of course, property is alienable, but our right to property is not, right? I mean, we all in the abstract have the right to own property, whether or not we actually own it. Um, but but yeah, that's very interesting. Todd, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I just wanted to go back to Rob's great point that sort of comes from Flegelman has been developed by some other um, scholars as well uh, about this. I just was, um, was rereading, I'm, I'm teaching this book this uh, semester in a few weeks when I get started. Uh, the new book by Annette Gordon-Reed and uh, Peter Onuf, uh, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, which is a, a study of Jefferson's, not a biography, but a study of Jefferson and several themes. And there's a great chapter there on Jefferson and music. I mean, Jefferson is a player and singer himself, but it ends with a very thoughtful meditation on the Declaration of Independence as a piece of music. And they make a pretty compelling, to my mind, pretty compelling argument that Jefferson thought about the Declaration as something to be performed that the, the, not only with the marks and the punctuation and things like that, but the flow of the line, the fact that um, uh, pursuit of happiness sounds better than property when you say it and attach it as the third part of, of that statement. Um, and his constant reference to things like, you know, harmonizing principles or harmonizing tendencies, um, talking about American voices and things like that. Uh, they make a pretty compelling case that Jefferson, like a composer, would put marks in this piece of, of, of writing to indicate how it should be performed in the same way that composers mark music with pianissimo or sforzando or uh, retards or things like that, that it's, it's a set of stage directions because Jefferson expected, and I think believed that the declaration would be more effective read aloud. And that's another thing that the declaration has in common with Payne's Common Sense, which mm. was widely reprinted, but was also a document meant to be read and therefore heard because uh, Payne spent hours working with Benjamin Rush, reading this aloud and changing various phrases and things like that in the same way that I think Jefferson, I don't know, Rob probably does because he knows far more about this, but I'm not sure if Jefferson read this or practiced on someone in the way Payne did, but I think Jefferson just in his own, his mind's ear, if you will, read this aloud, talked about it himself and clearly thought this was something that needed to be performed. And so I think what, what, what Flegelman did and the way that, uh, for example, Gordon Reed and Onuf have now worked that into a larger part of Jefferson's understanding of music uh, is just really fascinating, and I think spot on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's a very interesting question from Debbie Price. Uh, she notes there are several references to God, well, divine providence, laws of nature and nature's God, supreme judge of the world. Um, were these intentionally used for purposes of convincing people to back the declaration or was it something they actually believed this puts me in mind of a, a comment that in the in the run-up to the 2012 election when mike huckabee was still in the running uh he uh he said something to the effect of most of the signers of the declaration were clergy he was roundly criticized for that because of course they weren't um but 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 this feeds into debbie's question um were they overt, were the, were the signers uh, overtly religious in the way we think of it today? And when they use terms that seem to, uh, that, 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 that uh, seem to refer to God, are they doing this because they look good or because they actually believe that? 
Rob, you should go ahead and take this first. Okay, sure. I mean, the first point I, I'll make is I'm sure one that Todd would make, that there was a great deal of religious diversity among the members of the Continental Congress, um, both in terms of, uh, of, of the, you know, um, the specific uh, churches they attended. You know, there was uh, a Catholic among them. There were members of the Church of England. There was a Quaker. Um, but, but also in terms of, you know, their kind of fundamental beliefs. There were people who, in our parlance, I guess we would call uh, kind of like born-again uh, Christians or evangelicals. Um, and there were others who were more like deists. And, you know, Jefferson uh, was, was a deist. Jefferson um, believed in God, um, but he didn't believe in a God who intervened in the workings of the world. Um, you know, the common analogy is the divine clockmaker or watchmaker um, who created this amazing machine and created the laws of physics and imparted um, into, the, into humanity um, a, a sort of moral sense and, and, a, and a benevolence. Um, but, you know, because God was perfect, he didn't have to go back and intervene and flood the earth or even sent his son to live among us. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the range. And, um, and yet, you know, I think they, they did to a person uh, believe in God. And I think that they understood the, their audience and, you know, and that this would make it more compelling as well. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the answer to the question is probably uh, not either or, but both. I mean, I think they did they, they did genuinely believe this in many cases, um, some more than others. But I think it's also part of a general um, knowledge of their audience, uh, knowledge of what their audience would have believed and, and would have known themselves. And again, it's a way, I think, of sort of speaking in, in fairly general terms uh, about this um, uh, divine presence or divine being in the various ways that, uh, that they refer to it there. So I think it's, um, it is an expression that many people would, would take very seriously themselves, but I think it's also the sort of thing that, that can work at a broader, less specific and far more general level um, to do some important uh, sort of rhetorical work in this document. The, the, the reference to divine providence was particularly interesting to me because recently I read a letter from Jefferson where he described himself as an Epicurean. Now, for those of you not familiar with Epicureanism, this was a pre-Christian sort of philosophy that came out of the Hellenistic world um, in which there are, refer there, there, are also, there are all sorts of references to divine providence, not to refer to a particular god, but to some deity who is in charge. And things in the art, the Epicureans believe that this is an essentially benign force, that things work, things essentially work because divine providence is, is, is in effect. So, yeah, when I when I saw the term divine providence, I immediately thought of Jefferson's uh, Jeff Jefferson's reference to himself as a as an Epicurean and, and perhaps most deists would have had a uh, would have had a similar view. Um, got another question here, and this is, I, I guess, in the, in the short time that we have left, I want to talk a little bit more about the reaction to this document. Um, is this a successful document? I and mean, Cody Northrup put it like this, puts it like this, when did the declaration come to be recognized as the expression of the American mind, in Jefferson's words? In other words, when did it begin to receive the esteem that it holds today as the seminal American American document. I mean, you know, is is this simply a case that 
because we happened to because we happened to win the American Revolution. Now we look back at this document as being critically important, or or was it regarded as such uh, in the 1770s? Well, I've done. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Todd. Yeah, uh, let me answer briefly and then turn this over to Rob, who's actually published quite a bit on this and, and will have a lot to, to share with us. Uh, but I, I think one theme I would just bring up quickly um, is that uh, in some ways the Declaration sort of gets, if not rediscovered, at least brought back to the surface quite a bit during the party conflicts of the 1790s, when Jefferson and the people who would become Democratic Republicans with him, like Madison and others, um, were deeply troubled by the Federalist celebrations of George Washington and Washington's birthday, which was February 22nd. And they very consciously wanted to turn, make the great national holiday, not Washington's birthday, um, but but the, the birthday of the nation, July 4th. Uh, and of course they, they uh, coined that phrase, uh, principles and not men. Um, and so in some ways the declaration begins to come back to life and, and have a real impact in the 1790s as a kind of rallying point for many democratic Republicans against the Federalists. Um, and then of course, from that point on, once, once Jefferson comes into power and the Democratic Republicans become the dominant uh, power across the country, uh, then it does get get uh, uh, reified into the kind of document that looks something like we think of it today. Um, but then of course, there's a, a later development in the 1860s that Rob can talk about that, uh, that helps further that cause um, as well. Yeah, so I, I think Todd is exactly right. Um, it, it's it's probably worth noting that um, Washington ordered that the declaration be read in front of the army. It was proclaimed publicly, um, read aloud, just as intended, um, throughout the United States. The text of it appeared in um, nearly every Patriot American newspaper, so it was hardly ignored. Um, people understood that it was a big deal, but they treated it maybe more like a press release than the Declaration of Independence, this great national statement of purpose. Um, and as Todd pointed out, um, it was really kind of a gradual process that the Declaration of Independence um, came to be recognized as, as a big deal. Um, and, and part of that process is, is linked to Jefferson's um, initial lack of, of fame as its author and then um, growing fame as its author. The first uh, public reference that I could find um, to Jefferson as the author of the Declaration of Independence was um, in an Independence Day uh, sermon delivered by um, the president of, of Yale at the time, Ezra Stiles. And Stiles uh, preached that um, it was, it was uh, Thomas Jefferson who poured the soul of the continent into the monumental Declaration of Independence. And it's interesting to see how Stiles discovered that it was Jefferson, because uh, in his diary, he writes earlier that year in 1783 that he uh, died in dined in company with Colonel Langston of, of, uh, of New Hampshire. Um, he says, Mr. Jeffries of Virginia wrote the Declaration of Independency. Hmm. Um, so, you know, he originally got Jefferson's name wrong. He clearly um, clarified this. Um, and and that's the first published reference. Uh, hmm. And you don't see many references to Jefferson as author until, as Todd points out, um, really the election of 1796, when Jefferson and Adams are now um, you know, being put forth as candidates for the presidency in opposition to one another. And one of the charges um, that the Federalists are levying against Thomas Jefferson is that he's really un-American. 
Um, you know, Jefferson has spent time in France. The Federalists have done uh, everything they, they can and, and with a few able assists by Thomas Jefferson himself to link him with the French Revolution. Um, and what better response to this charge that Jefferson is un-American and that he's really more of a French revolutionary than an American revolutionary than for the, the Jeffersonian Republicans to say, oh, yeah, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Wow. Well, I am afraid this is lots of fun. I am afraid we are out of time. I want to thank both of our panelists, Rob and Todd, uh, as well as our participants for some uh, for some terrific questions. Just a reminder about the email you'll, re you'll be receiving with a link for a certificate of participation, if you would like that. If you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course through the Ashbrook Center, which are also offered as part of our MAG program. Uh, Rob and Todd are, are both uh, instructors in that program, of course. You can find more information about Ashbrook's online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org and you can help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the, the archive link which you'll receive by email next week. Share that with your colleagues and on social media. Uh, our next Documents in Detail webinar will be Wednesday, September 20th when our subject will be James Madison's Federalist 51. At that time, I'll be joined by Dr. Jeremy Bailey of the University of Houston and Dr. Adam Seagrave of the University of Missouri. The recommended readings for that webinar have already been posted, so check them out. We hope to see you back here on September 20th. Have a terrific evening, everyone. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at tah.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.